0: Welcome to the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast.
1: An estimated 20 hospitals across six states have been attacked by Russian-based ransomware attacks in the past month, and more attacks are likely, according to an FBI alert that said, quote, there is credible information of an increased and imminent cybercrime threat to U.S. hospitals. Welcome to another episode of the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. Today, we'll be talking to Lee Barrett, Executive Director of ENAC, who will talk to us about this increase in cybersecurity risks and how we as an industry might better prepare for them. I'm your host, Matthew Albright, and I serve as the Communication Committee Chair for Weedy. That's W E D I Weedy. Weedy is a national membership organization where the health information technology community connects, collaborates, and creates solutions for a better health system. My day job as Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous Payments, Zealous's mission is to enable providers to simplify and save on their payments and claims. In our virtual studio, we've got the producer of this podcast, Michael McNutt, Director of Education and Events for Weedy. Michael, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, but that intro scared me. Did it? <laughs> Well, it's not meant to scare, and hopefully, uh, Lee will make us feel a little bit better about it. Uh, like I said, in our virtual studio today, we do have Lee Barrett, a good friend to Weedy, Executive Director of ENAC, that's the Electronic Healthcare Network Accreditation Commission. ENAC, as many of you know, is an accrediting body that actually grew out of Weedy back in the early 90s, when the industry had need of an entity that could uh, develop standards for data transmission and data security. ENAC actually began accrediting electronic health networks in 1995. Lee is actually a former chair of WEDI. He's been involved in the Fire at Scale Task Force established by the Office of the National Coordinator and the Department of Health and Human Services Cybersecurity Task Force. Lee, we're very excited to talk with you today. It's great to have you on our show. Matthew, thanks very much and uh, great to be here as well. Very good. So, to start off, a little tradition on this show, we like to find out how healthcare IT thought leaders such as yourself have gotten uh, sucked into this industry. All superheroes have an origin story, Lee. So, what's your origin story? Well,
2: my origin story, Matthew, uh, is as as many of you are veterans in this industry, uh, I am probably considered part of uh, that group as a veteran. So. Actually, this started, uh, I've got uh, about, you know, 12 years uh, working for payers, and then I've worked uh, for the provider community as well for the American Dental Association for a number of years, Uh, and then I've run a number of um, small companies, healthcare companies that I've had the opportunity to develop and were acquired uh, in healthcare. So I've been involved with a a lot of, of that, at least from the from the provider, the payer, as well as from the um, vendor side of the equation. But what a lot of people may not know is that back in '91, uh, I started what was called the Accredited Standards Committee uh, X12. Uh, this was under at that point the um, ASC X12 was basically all finance based at that point, and uh, we were able to start a healthcare Uh, accreditation component um, under uh, the Accredited Standards Committee X-12. And I did, and at that point, we really took on the role and the vision that I had back then, Matthew, of developing a single set of standards for the healthcare industry. Back then, um, there were about 450 different claim standards that were being used in the industry. Um, And the Healthcare Finance Administration, HICFA back then, now CMS, really had responsibility for all of that uh, and all those various formats. Well, that was uh, obviously very problematic for the healthcare industry back then. My vision was to create a single set of standards. And so we started doing that. And um, what we did, it took us uh, a total of about eight years before all the standards that we developed. Uh, actually were adopted under HIPAA. And so the 837, the 835s, uh, the 278s, 270, 271s, all those transactions we developed with a coalition from uh, the healthcare industry for, as I said, those eight years are about 400 400 different uh, people and uh, a variety of different organizations Payer, provider, vendor that uh, were involved in developing that. So that's kind of a claim uh, that uh, a lot of people don't know about my background. Um, and then I worked very closely with uh, Bill Braithwaite, um, Dr. Bill Braithwaite or Dr. HIPAA, uh, who really had responsibility for developing the HIPAA legislation. We worked very closely uh, while he was developing that. So that's kind of uh, uh, my background and how I got into this, and uh, how I'm passionate about what we're doing, as far as privacy and security and all the transactions. Matthew.
1: So, so Lee, I guess you really are a superhero because uh, basically what you did was you took uh, 450 different claim formats, you <laughs> standardized them all into one, uh, and you also established Weedy. So, I think that's a pretty good that's a pretty good uh, superhero origin story. I like that.
2: Well, thanks. So that that's kind of uh, how I got involved in healthcare and and kind
1: of my passion for healthcare and what we're doing for the industry. Terrific. So now you're with ENAC. Do you want to talk to us a little bit more about ENAC, what you've all been up to lately, and maybe what you're most excited about uh, in your current work? Sure. So um, ENAC,
2: you know, as you indicated in the introduction, we've been in existence since 1995, um, and we are a, a nonprofit entity. We are federally recognized uh, as a standards development organization. And so we follow a, a very transparent, open process for the development of all of uh, our accreditation programs. And so, uh, so what that means is that we, uh, we allow and provide the capability on our website for anybody who's interested in taking a look at our 20-plus programs They can download those programs, see exactly what they need to do, and then make application. So uh, that's a very good process. We've gotten really good feedback from the industry about the openness and the transparency that we have. So the 20-plus programs that we've developed, uh, we first started out in '95. Um, really working with the clearinghouse industry. And so our first accreditation was uh, around supporting the clearinghouses. Um, And it included uh, privacy, security, uh, as well as a number of technical, operational, and business requirements that comprised uh, that accreditation program. And what ended up happening is that the states of Maryland and New Jersey, as an example, uh, put regulations in place which said that any payer in those states that were using a clearinghouse had to be ENAC accredited. Well, that was a, a, a very big uh, positive for us. And again, uh, we're very fortunate that uh, the majority of all the clearinghouses in the country are accredited through ENAC today. What we did over the past 10 years as we've continued to to build and to develop new programs we focused uh, on a lot of the data exchange initiatives that are occurring in the industry. So we've developed, for example, uh, accreditation programs for health information exchanges, uh, accountable care organizations, data registries. Uh, we also um, are a certifier for e-prescribing uh, networks, and so uh, we also were approved by the Drug Enforcement Agency. We're one of about six organizations that's approved by the DEA for uh, certifying organizations for e-prescribing for, with controlled substances. So we have uh, really took on over these past 10 years of expanding uh, our programs to really focus, again, on uh, the industry and being able to help the industry and raise the bar Especially around privacy and security uh, of data exchange, and really focused as well uh, on as this program is starts to be talk is talking about and focused on cybersecurity and being able to assure organizations that they have the appropriate policies, procedures, controls in place. So we're very focused now. Just to um, kind of summarize here on the whole interoperability side. So we're continuing to. Be very involved with uh, a lot of the initiatives that are going on with the industry on development of uh, various interoperability accreditation programs to, again, create the level of stakeholder trust that people are looking for.
1: Very good, Lee. Uh, and I, I see on your um, your website you've got about um, thirty different uh, certifications for different functions within the um, healthcare uh, environment. And it's very easy to kind of figure out, like uh, you know, what kind of entity I am and what kind of certification I need. With uh, once you go to your uh, website, I see. So that's correct. Yep. Thank you. Good. So uh, I mentioned a series of uh, ransomware attacks that we've seen over the last uh, six weeks or so. Uh, let's talk about that. So this is dangerous stuff. Some cases, you know, all of the facilities, computers and networks might have to be shut down. Delivery of healthcare has to be done, you know, back to using paper. Uh, what's driving all this, Lee? What's what's going on out there? All
2: right. Well, first of all, you know, healthcare is is a very significant um, market attack market for cy- cyber attackers. Um, and. So people ask ask us all the time, "Well, why is that?" And I tell them that it's it's pretty simple. Um, when you look at your um, credit card record today, if that is stolen uh, on the black market, it's worth about a dollar. Uh, your electronic health record, however, when that is stolen, it is worth about five hundred to eight hundred dollars. And so you could say, well, geez, that's unbelievable. How? Wh- why is that? And the reason it is, and the reason it's so worth as much as it is, is because any type of cyber attacker can be able to then use your electronic health record to, one, uh, submit fraudulent claims, two, get drugs, uh, opioids, other types uh, of drugs, uh, they can as well, Uh, do a variety of other things to uh, attack and and use that electronic health record to gain access to other information that's worth a lot of money. And it takes about a year before uh, any cyber attacker would in fact be tracked down uh, for using that record. So they've got that period of time to leverage records. So when we hear, for example, all the time from Providers or others um, that are smaller organizations in healthcare, who tell me constantly that they're too small; they're no one's going to going to really target them. What I tell them all the time is, you're exactly the the type of entities that they will target, along with bigger entities as well. But. In your particular practice, for example, you might only have uh, you might have two thousand records. Well, think about two thousand records times about eight hundred dollars that they can get uh, on the black market for that electronic health record. That's worth a lot of money. So what I'm, besides the fact that what I tell uh, providers, and I've been fortunate to work with uh, a number of provider organizations and dental organizations as well, um, to be their compliance officer. And the, the issue that I tell them as well is it's not just being able to steal those records and, and have those records, but if you have an exposure where over 500 people, uh, their information is in fact uh, exposed, then you have to as well um, report that to the Office of Civil Rights, OCR. Uh, that has to be reported to the media. I said now. Now you've got not only the the impact of those records being stolen, but now you have the media exposure. You have a reputational exposure to your practice. Um, you have um, a lot. And at that point, if you've got a reputational exposure. Uh, and people, your patients are saying, well, geez, I, I, can't, I can't go there anymore because I can't trust that they're taking care of my, my information. Now you've got as well a revenue uh, exposure as well to your practice and whether or not it's going to be able to survive. So you look at all of this, uh, Matthew, and I would tell you that's, that's just some examples for smaller organizations. But then you start to look at larger organizations and the size of these impacts it's all about getting the data, uh, and so the exposures are very high. The numbers. Uh, the other thing that's occurred is that we've now um, not only indicated and uh, in the the issues uh, around more um, what I would call uh, risk vectors, um, and. A risk vector is as we're exchanging data amongst all of these various entities now, we've now exponentially increased the, the number of points that in which uh, cyber attackers can attack that data and get at that data. So as we look at, for example, uh, interoperability, look we look at where we're going as far as uh, a data exchange in the future, uh, we're going to be adding Uh, a number of additional vectors, risk vectors. And so, uh, whether or not it's a smartphone, whether or not it's an infusion pump in in a hospital uh, setting, uh, whether or not it's various other types of uh, not only smart devices, but um, as well these various qualified health information networks that are going to be exchanging data and will be – assembling my electronic health record. Um, The answer is we're now increasing the number of data points here for for risk. So the more points that we have requires a a lot more diligence uh, and vigilance uh, around the, the types of policies, procedures, controls, how we're testing, how we're training. All of these increase the number of exposures. If you look at the ransomware attacks that we're talking about here uh, that are occurring within many of the hospital, many hospital systems are being attacked with those, um, like uh, Universal Health uh, Services, which is a major hospital system, was attacked very short time ago. Again, a big big part of uh, attacking these is to get at that information, to get at um, the electronic health record information that they have. So being able to, to take that and, and have control over an entire environment, and then you've got the, the capability. The problem is what we're seeing in a lot of these ransomware attacks is that hospital systems and others uh, in many cases are paying the ransom or in other cases they're not. Uh, If they're not, then they're down. Uh, They're completely uh, out of uh, being able to provide services uh, and being able to access information. In fact, we had a major cyber uh, ransomware attack that occurred in Connecticut here with with a major hospital system. They were down for over close to 10 days. Not a single electronic health record, not a single patient could make... um, an appointment, could get their information. The entire environment was inaccessible. So now you got people who uh, have life-threatening illnesses and diagnosis and have to go for for treatment, say somebody who has cancer that needs treatment and could be starting their treatment or is in the process of going through their treatment. They couldn't even go. So um, it's very... um, there, there's a lot of risk here with all these ransomware attacks, and is it going to stop? The answer is not anytime soon. That's for sure because yeah. of because of the cost, because of the how much this data is
1: worth. Yeah, and I think that's a I think you made an excellent distinction too between the ransomware and you know what we've grown accustomed to with HIPAA and privacy breaches. Um, this is not you know a computer was left out and it's got um, electronic health records. No. And, We've got to announce and contact everybody and try and get on their, you know, their the credit uh, reports and things like this. This is this is actually shutting down healthcare access and, and could be risking lives. So <clears throat> you you certainly mentioned um, uh, uh, that um, hospitals should be prepared for that. Uh, what, what should hospitals do? And maybe more importantly, uh, what can the smaller facilities or smaller healthcare entities do to protect themselves or uh, uh, at <laughs> least come prepared? um uh especially the smaller ones which don't have a large compliance uh, sector or de- department, right what can they do?
2: So there's actually a lot lot that they can do Matthew which which is um, the good news. Um, now the one thing I'm going to say before I kind of give you some of the things that they can do I'm, I'm going to tell you that and everyone should know that you're not going to stop an attack from occurring uh, Attacks are going to be going going to occur, they are occurring you have to assume your organization whether you're a small provider whether or not you're in a group practice whether or not you're in a major health system what you're a payer you're going to be attacked and the the issue is um one it's a matter of what you're doing to to prepare for that attack and then it's second the second which is even more important is what do you do after you are attacked and if you have a ransomware or a cyber attack that's occurred, how are you going to, how are you prepared to address it and to meet um, that challenge when that happens as far as your plan, in your contingency plan, and how you're going to be able to act to and react to it quickly? That's the most important aspect. Of the planning that organizations need to be doing here. So, in answer to your question, um, first of all, there 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 are a number of issues that organizations um, need to be looking at, whether or not you're a small organization or a large organization. One is, you know, and as far as kind of ransomware attacks we, that we're talking about here, is lack of system backup. And again, the if if an organization is doing a a partial uh, or a partial backup, or only certain information is being backed up and not the entire system on an ongoing basis, then that's, that's a vulnerability. Um, the other aspect here is for doing, for example, as new uh, patches or new software updates are occurring. You cannot be in a position where you're allowing you know, an individual to actually download the patch, you need to push those patches out, push those updates out, so that it's actually happening in the background, whether or not somebody knows or not. If you allow individuals um, to actually have to download the patches, well, now you're vulnerable. because, you know, I'm always gonna say, well, gee, I don't have enough time right now to take this patch and take the time to do that, so I'll do that later. Well, now you got a vulnerability. phishing is a is probably the biggest um, uh, impact and biggest area in which any malware is in fact um, implanted or impregnated in, in an environment. Um, and so basically the uh, there there really uh, is going through and organizations need to have probably a third party entity that's actually doing some training and helping, to increase awareness on an ongoing basis uh, and sending phishing emails um, to uh, companies, practices, et cetera, so that people get used to understanding and knowing what these look like and what, what you can't click on, um, To because the minute you click or the second you click on that link, that that malware, that uh, ransomware is now implanted uh, in your environment and now they take over. What ends up happening that we've seen is that in many cases, even organizations that go through a lot of this, this training on phishing, um, they have to do it on an ongoing basis. So because um, attackers, cyber attackers have gotten very sophisticated to the point where you can get an email that looks like it's coming right from a family member and um, they're asking you, they're in trouble, and they need money uh, immediately in an effort to get out of jail or to get out of a particular situation that they've occurred. But it looks like it's coming from your uncle, daughter, aunt, whatever. I mean, they've gotten so sophisticated with these emails. So you need to be able to um, really understand and be able to uh, have enough experience to know when When you can click on something that comes from the outside of your environment, and when you should not. Um, The other, I think,
1: think to that point, actually, that actually. Actually backs up your previous point about pushing out updates because that's one right. of the phishing tricks we see is, hey, your Microsoft account needs to, you know, you need to re-enter your password to the Microsoft account because we lost something, or and it looks very formal, right? These phishing attacks, and so if you're pushing that out as the IT uh, component of an institution, then then that's that then you don't have to depend on an individual. To be pressing, clicking on links that may not actually be uh, the the update, right? And exactly and what you're talking about is really just uh, preparing people. It's like uh, what we used to do, uh, well, right, right in the fifties, where you'd hide underneath, you know, hide underneath your desk because the atomic bomb's coming, right? What you're doing that's is right. just constantly sending out fake phishing so that people become better and better uh, at seeing that uh, something is not right with any particular email, and that's yeah. a great habit.
2: And that's why I'm saying if, if you have somebody there, there are a lot of companies that are doing uh, this type of training and it's always good to have a third party entity that's that's sending these in, because really that that's if you have somebody that's doing it from the inside, um, it, it, it's too easy. I mean, that's not to say that that's not a good thing um, to continue to get get people used to it, but it's always good to have an outside source to do that with. So I mean I think you know th- those are some of the aspects. It's also lack of testing and proven data backup, uh, the lack of network security controls, and the other issue is around passwords. Um, one of the other things that we see all the time is the fact that uh, people do not are not one not only changing passwords or they're not but they're not putting in strong enough passwords. You cannot we see it all the time. In fact, fifty percent of passwords in this country uh, that we see use the word password, or one, two, three, four, five, six, you know, and 50%, uh, Matthew. So if you don't uh, as well have a rigor when you talk about cyber hygiene, about assuring that you're changing passwords every 120 days, that they're strong passwords, they're they're using uh, different types of characters, numbers um, in it, and, and you don't use, you know, your your home address or, or your spouse's name or something. You have to be vigilant about it. And I tell that to people all the time. So that's another piece of this that's kind of part of what I would call good cyber hygiene and what organizations can do to minimize. And I'm never going to use the, the word eliminate but minimize the impact. But the, the other aspect of this that's critical, in a ransomware attack, one of the things is that organization, many organizations don't have it and haven't um, implemented the appropriate backups uh, of all of their systems. If you do that, you're gonna be in a good position as part of your contingency plan to go to your backup and completely uh, kind of reinstall, re- re-image your system so that, yeah, you may lose uh, a few hours worth uh, worth of time, but you're not going to lose days and you're not going to be out of business for a week or 10 days and, and, and that impact that it's going to have. So that's all part of, to me, having that contingency plan, uh, going through that contingency plan, implementing that contingency plan when there is an attack. Um, implementing that contingency plan, showing going through that, determining where you might have some gaps, remediating those gaps in the contingency plan and continuing to do it so that when that attack occurs that you you're, you're not just doing it for the first time, you now have a process in place. people know what their what their roles and responsibilities are, and you can minimize significantly minimize the impact to your organization.
1: Yeah, and I, right, you're talking about fire drills, right? You're talking about tabletop modeling of uh, right. And yeah. I, and I love your terminology, cyber hygiene, because if you think about it, and you think about the metaphor to our own hygiene, to our own personal hygiene, yes, it's a series of tasks that you should take, right? You you wash your hands, you brush your teeth, you floss, whatever you need to do. That's the make sure you have the backup, make sure you have the 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 you know the the stuff that protects your 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 firewalls and everything. But it also connotes the idea of developing good habits right? Absolutely. So it's kind of a very organic. So these tasks should become automatic, almost involuntary, uh, just like brushing your teeth in the morning. Uh, we should be changing our passwords on a, on a regular basis and those kind of habits that you develop uh, with the workforce. I think it's great. Absolutely.
2: And, and, you know, you know, Matthew, as, as we, as we were talking about all, all these various aspects and we look at where ONC, for example, is going uh, as far as, you know, interoperability and increasing the yeah. availability of data for patients, uh, which is really their their mantra and really the objective of where this is going, it, you know the the need for the diligence and the vigilance around privacy and security on how this data exchange is going to occur in the industry as it's going through readiness it is takes on a, a whole different um, and and far more uh, larger. Um, Larger impact that organizations can have, and I think that, you know, as we look at today, you know, uh, if if uh, if I travel and I go into um, I get rolled into a emergency room in California, um, and I'm unconscious today. You know, that attending physician um, doesn't have access to all the informa- all of my electronic health record data, and so they can't administer treatment today. In the future, I mean, take this forward as far as what ONC is trying to do and connecting up all these various qualified health information networks, all the participants and how they're going to be exchanging data in here. Take that same scenario where I get rolled in in a couple of years from now and I'm unconscious, they'll be able to get my license out of my wallet, key that, key that license information into the EHR system. Uh, and then from there, they'll uh, be able to cue basically all of these qualified health information networks, get the information and uh, bring that back. And then be able to have a lot my electronic health record. That's that's where the data is gonna be. And that's that's a whole aspect around privacy and security.
1: Yeah, I think um Lee and, and and let's dive down to that because what you're talking about is we're entering to this age, certainly with the interoperability rules and, and the other the the trend here is that we're going to allow much greater access. To our uh, health data, to our personal health data, and this is going to be very good. Just like you said, this is going to save lives. This is going to be able to uh, a doctor uh, can very quickly. And we think about this current pandemic that we're in, and the need for telehealth, and the need for emergency services. Uh, mm-hmm. a- any place we go, they'll be very quickly be able to draw up our our health records and and save our lives or stop our bleeding or whatever needs to happen. But at the same time, like we talked about before, this is just uh, another risk factor, or it opens up a whole new. Series of risk vectors for uh, cyber attacks. So, yeah. how how do we strike that balance, and, or, or, or are we even prepared to to move into that free access? Do we do we really have the privacy and security foundation to enter into this new free the data world?
2: You know, and we and you know, what, Matthew, it's a good question. Uh, my my feeling is we do have the privacy and security controls, although, you know. One of the things that that has happened, and um, but in, in answer to your question, I believe we do have the controls in place. We do have uh, the policies, procedures. There's a lot of great information and resources that are available uh, to to organizations, whether whether you're a small organization or you're a large entity. The same level of of rigor has to apply. But you know, again, the, it, this comes down to uh, people, organizations investing and assuring that level of cyber hygiene that has to be critical there as we as we look at you know uh, what's happened with with covid nineteen and the for example, re- the relaxation that's occurred from the office of civil rights around things like telehealth and other um, really access and and information exchange and who has access to what information they they relaxed a lot of those rules as as a result of the pandemic and they had to because people needed to have access to a lot of this information a lot faster and they weren't able to have all the the appropriate checks and balances when and when the pandemic is over and uh, we all hope that that is sooner rather than later but when that when that happens, I I believe that OCR will go back to their enforcement, their level of enforcement that they had before. Um, I believe that the level of rigor that organizations and people will need to have about accessing data will need to be there, and people will need to really kind of uh, re-educate all their staff, their 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 teams. Um, and heighten awareness around how data should and should not be handled. Um, I think that we've got all that, but it's going to be a matter of really uh, assuring that that people are, are putting these controls in place, have the the policies, the procedures, the controls, how they're implementing, how they're overseeing, and, and how they're now how they're training and putting in the contingency planning. And as we talked about going through that on an ongoing basis and making and reviewing where they may have gaps and remediating those. It can be done. It certainly can be done and should be done. Are we going to eliminate uh, ransomware and any of these cyber attacks from occurring? The answer is no. It's going to continue to occur and probably on a bigger, um, perhaps even on a bigger scale than it has. Uh, That's kind of hard to believe, but I, I think that the 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 value of an electronic health record is going to continue to be there, which is why cyber attackers are going to continue to go after it, and they will for a long long time. When we so, talk about some of these patches, you know the one of the one of the biggest uh, ransomware attacks was the WannaCry uh, uh, cyber attack ransomware attack that occurred in Europe uh, a couple of years ago. And as a result of that, that cost billions of dollars to the industry in Europe. Um, What they did as a reaction is they did a couple of things. And and the reason that that occurred is that um, organizations were still using Microsoft uh, XP platforms, which were no longer supported by Microsoft and therefore left a gap in relation to Um, security, a security gap that uh, cyber attackers were able to take advantage of and plant ransomware. But, you know, if you look at this from the standpoint of what they put in place, they put in the General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR, which provides for far more privacy for consumers uh, in Europe Um, They also put in a a set of controls that organizations have to go through called cyber essentials. So now they've kind of raised the bar uh, for vendors and others that they have to go through this to assure a level of security of their infrastructures. And we've now taken some of that as well in California um, as far as the California uh, Protection Act that was put in. Uh, Consumer Protection Act, and they've also, we from the U.S. We've taken on more more of a focus on privacy for consumers, and we've got a number of states that are doing that, and even at the federal level, we're seeing that. So, there's I, I see that a lot of things are continuing to evolve, where um, we're we're raising the bar, and there's a lot of entities in the United States that are focusing on. Uh, this whole aspect of ransomware and cyberware attacks. And, and um, for example, the healthcare sector coordinating council uh, that I've been involved with, that entity is, is really an initiative uh, between the public and private sector to coordinate uh, a lot of the cybersecurity initiatives that are going on in this country. And they've put together really over the past couple of years, a uh, number of work groups, a number of uh, initiatives especially uh, with COVID-19 as well, on how uh, to react to a lot of this, in which they really have, have made some significant impacts and, and have come up with really some terrific reference materials uh, for the industry for sharing information, sharing threats that occur. So um, there are some really great resources that are available to, uh, that are going on and that are working uh, in the industry as
1: well in healthcare. Uh, very good. And so what it sounds like is um, is we've got all the tools, right? Um, we just need to get better at applying them, get training, get people used to them, get people implementing them. And we even have uh, a kind of legislative infrastructure that's already been introduced in Europe. Um, and I think your WannaCry is a great uh, metaphor, or analogy of where we had the tool uh, that could have uh, perhaps prevented it, which was a simple patch or update, and uh, we just didn't implement it. So I think there's there, that, that gives me some aspirational hope. What, how, how, how do you see, you know, backing off of cybersecurity and privacy, um, you, you, you've been involved in, in, in basically every major development of the last 40 years here of where we're going with health IT and health data. Uh, looking at the healthcare system, U.S. healthcare system at, at large, um, where are we going to be in five or ten years? Uh, is the picture hopeful? Is uh, things going to be streamlined? Are we going to lower costs and all the the promises of earlier legislation? Uh, what's your what's your vision, lee?
2: i'm 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 very excited about the next five years. Um, i I think this this goes really goes back to uh, the example that I gave you on um, today uh, going into that, you know being rolled in uh, unconscious into an emergency room. And the fact that I, you know, without access to my electronic health record, um, an attending physician can't start any type of treatment. Versus, you know, when you know when this entire interoperable environment network uh, exchange is put in place, we're going to have a lot more um, data exchange points. Yes, we're <clears throat> going to be increasing our um, risk vectors, as we talked about. But it's really going to be the diligence and the vigilance uh, of all of the players and all the stakeholders that are going to be implementing that, the qualified health information networks, the participants, the vendors, and putting that in place. But getting to that point where in the next three to five years, we have this environment in place and being able to be in position where my electronic health record uh, and I'm unconscious. Um, and that attending physician can can get to that uh, immediately in seconds is significant. Um, that's where we're going to we're going mortality is going to go down. Uh, we're going to see a lot more access to information. Patients are are really going to be enabled um, to be able to have a lot of their data on their smartphones. Uh, we're going to have, a, you know, whether or not it's a Fitbit or other types of smart devices, we're going to have a lot more information uh, that will be available. Again, all of these, however, uh, increase the amount of, of risks that are out there. So whether it's a patient, whether or not it's going to be a provider, uh, whether or not it's a health plan, uh, it's a major provider or hospital system, all of the stakeholders have got to um, increase their vigilance around their cyber hygiene and how they're implementing and how they're overseeing and training and making sure that the education is high. I, I am very excited for how this is going to evolve. You know, we're going to have a lot more data points. I think that um, a lot more people will have the, the opportunity uh, to be able to control and, and have access to their information than they've ever had before.
1: Very, very good. and 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 I love that you brought this back. We, we, you know, we've been talking about data and IT and and moving and access, uh, and it all comes back to saving lives. It all comes back to the health of people and, and and ultimately the idea that this will this will save lives. This is about getting the right information in front of the right person who's gonna save a life. Before we sign off, uh, Lee, um, you've touched on a number of organizations and resources. Do you want to repeat a few of those for our listeners and, and uh, even give out the the names or even the websites where, where people can get more information, certain, certainly about the cybersecurity stuff?
2: Absolutely, Matthew. So there the I think resources that all of you should be aware of um, and should look to as for guidance because there's a lot of great resources out there to help you. The Healthcare Sector Coordinating Council, Uh, HSCC is one, NIST, the National Institute for Standards and Technology, NIST Special Publication, 800-184, The Guide to uh, Cybersecurity uh, Event uh, Recovery is another great publication. Um, Health and Human Services, the uh, 405D, which is the Cybersecurity Information Sharing Act, which came out back in 2015, they developed a whole set uh, of documents, which are, are terrific for, and they really, they focused on really s- smaller um, healthcare organizations to uh, group group health plans or and, and group practices to community hospitals, to even larger health systems. And they created a whole set of uh, documents. So it's under the healthcare industry cybersecurity practices, managing threats and protecting patients. These sets of uh, resources that they have really can be, are applicable not only to the provider, but certainly to uh, the health plan uh, as well as to vendor organizations. It's some great great materials that are there. So those are those are several of the the sites and resources that I would tell people to uh, to check on. And, and really, it's a big focus around uh, cyber hygiene uh, and good cyber hygiene, Matthew.
1: Very, very good. Thank you, Lee. Lee, this has been a very excellent discussion, very timely. Uh, appreciate the time and expertise, not not just today, but for all the the, the time and expertise you've given to Weedy and, and, and the health industry over the, the last few years. So very much appreciate your time today.
2: Thank, thank you, Matthew. I've appreciated the opportunity in working with the industry and look forward
1: to it for many years to come. Very thank good. You. Very good. We've been talking with Lee Barrett, Executive Director of ENAC. This has been the collective voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast where the health information technology community connects, collaborates, and creates solutions for a better health system. You can find this episode and many more on our website, weedy.org. Thank you all for joining us and uh, be safe.
0: What a tremendous episode. Hi, everybody. It's Mike McNutt with Weedy. In the wake of the recent alerts from HHS, the FBI, and CISA that cyber actors are targeting the U.S. healthcare system, Weedy is holding a free event for Weedy members and non-members called Prepare and Protect, the Threat of Ransomware to the U.S. Health Industry, taking place Wednesday, December sixteenth, twenty 2020, 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are honored to have as our keynote speaker, Jeanette Manfra, Director of Government Security and Compliance with Google Cloud, and the former Assistant Secretary for Cybersecurity and Communications for the United States Department of Homeland Security. This special virtual event will offer the latest updates from government leadership, how to prepare your organization, lessons learned from those who've experienced a ransomware incident, and how to respond practically and legally. We invite all healthcare professionals to attend, prepare, and protect the threat of ransomware to the U.S. healthcare industry, taking place Wednesday, December 16, 2020, from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. For more information, please visit us at weedy.org.